This is Resonate, the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Monthly conversations on employer branding and the real scoop from expert practitioners and thought leaders coming to you from the mind of Jason Seiden. Welcome back to... <laughs> right out of the gate. I love it. <laughs> uh, welcome to the Resonate Podcast, your home for all things employer branding and really just a great excuse to talk to movers and shakers who are, who are bringing HR and marketing and recruiting together in all kinds of new ways. I'm your host, Jason Seiden. And with me today is a fantastic, fantastic woman, Susan Strayer-Lamott, uh, conceptualizer and president and founder of Exaquio. Uh, Susan, great having you on the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And and fair warning to listeners, Susan, I understand it's allergy and cold season out in the DC area where you live. So we will we will be generous and cut you some slack if we hear if we hear a sniffle along the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will do my best to sound like I'm not under the weather, but it's unavoidable sometimes. Yeah, it's not a problem. As a fellow allergy sufferer myself, I, I get it. It's the least I can do for you. So, uh, so Susan, why don't, tell us a little bit about you and the company you founded. Tell us about Exaquio, what you do, where the name came from. Sure, happy to. So Exaquio is an employer brand and talent consultancy. And basically, um, our job is to help organizations gain competitive advantage um, through honest and effective employer brands and talent strategies. What's sort of unique about us is we're not an agency, um, and we're not a big traditional consulting firm. We don't come to our clients with these big binders of recommendations or sit on site. Um, We're really a workforce consultancy where we come in, we solve problems, um, we create long-term strategy for them, and then we help them implement and sustain that strategy specifically in three areas, culture, employer brand, and talent. Um, So we're not a staffing agency, but we do help our clients um, make sure that they have better and more effective recruiting processes. Um, We help them build end-to-end employer brands. And then we also, especially for some of our smaller, high-growth and startup clients, we help build and strengthen culture. And the goal of all of it is to help our clients really stand out, um, make sure that their value proposition they offer from an employment perspective is unique and clear. Um, and that's, to answer your question, that's where the name came from. Um, exactly, it comes from the Latin word ex equio, which means on equal footing. Of course it and, does. You know, what I, <laughs> of, cor- I, of course it does. Everybody knows Latin, right? <laughs> right? Um, but that's, that's kind of I remember. Goal, right? I remember it's, hanging out at the coffee shop 3,000 years ago, and somebody used that term. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't remember it. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, here in D.C., we talk in Latin all the time um, because we're so smart. And as you know, D.C.ers are so much better than everyone else. At least that's what the politicians will make you think. <laughs> well, so, I want to hold on that for a second because you, you said one thing about uh, it means unequal footing. And we'll, we'll come back to the name in a second. But I actually want to apply that concept to something that you've already said uh, just to get yeah. some clarity. Because I know we, we've got people coming from all over. So you say culture and talent acquisition uh, and talent, and clear as day to you, probably clear as day to me, maybe, might be thinking the same thing as you, might be a little different, but I'm sure that there's there's other folks, and I'm, I'm sure when you walk into clients, not everybody really has a clear idea on what it means when you say that uh, you, know, you consult yeah. on talent and culture. So uh, mm-hmm. can you break it down a little bit? Like, What exactly do you do to help a company build a culture or strengthen its talent and and how does that connect? Well, why don't we start there, and then we'll connect it to yeah. the competitive advantage in a minute. Of course. 
Um, so on the culture side, it's pretty simple and basic. Essentially, what we do is we help organizations understand the reality of their culture. So you know, you have leaders and leadership teams who make assumptions about what their culture is. Um, we use data. We go to the workforce. We also go to the leaders themselves, and we use a lot of academic research techniques to help them understand, here's what your culture actually is, and here's what you think it is, and here are the gaps. And then we help them figure out how to strengthen that if there's culture challenges, if there's lots of gaps between what the leaders think it is and what the workforce thinks it is, or if the culture just isn't clear, if there's no consistency. Um, we had one client where we asked um, all of the leadership team, and this is a big client, this is a billion-dollar healthcare company. Mm-hmm. We asked the CEO and every member of his leadership team, there are 10 people in total, give us three adjectives to describe your culture. And of those 10 people and the three adjectives, the 30 words, only two words were the same. (laughs) And that's pretty incredible, right? I mean, if your leaders aren't clear of a billion-dollar company, what your culture is, imagine how that's been filtering down in individual functions, like marketing or finance. Okay, but now, all right, so let me take take the other side of this. And I know you've heard this before. And, you know, so get ready. Um, if I can drive a billion-dollar company without getting my 10 leaders aligned around culture, then how important is culture? Well, part of it is, yes, you can grow a billion-dollar company, but can't you grow it better? In this company's case, they had a, a plan, a five-year plan to get to $5 billion in five years, and they were struggling. And the as challenge. they were unearthing mm-hmm. what the root cause was, culture was one of those, was one of those things. You know, it's a, and yeah, you can certainly you can certainly grow a company. I mean, there's no doubt about it. If you look at Tony Shea's story at Zappos, his first company, he grew that company and sold it for a huge profit. But he wasn't happy and the people weren't happy. And that's why when he built Zappos, he said, hey, I'm going to really put a lot of energy and effort into culture. So, yeah, making money is part of it. I mean, we live in a capitalist world. But at the same time, you can make more money and have happier workers and be happier yourself along the way. If you strengthen your culture, How, is that is that concept any more important? I mean, you talk about happiness, and you know, half the people who hear that are going to go yes, and the other half are going to roll their eyes. To the eye rollers, is um, is that concept any more important today than it was, say, before the the crash, the two thousand eight the two thousand eight two thousand nine uh. meltdown. Yeah, I think so, um, for a couple of reasons. One, generational. We know that different generations value different things that work, um, and millennial generation is much pickier, um, so that's reason number one. Um, but also post-crash, you know, there's not to get into a political debate at all, but for the most part, the economy has turned around, and that's what the economic figures tell us. And mm-hmm. so we're starting to see wars for talent. We're starting to see STEM jobs and other areas where there are lots of concerns about finding the right fit talent. Um, there's a lot of companies that are still really struggling to hire. And so that's where culture comes into play when people have a lot more choice now um, with where they can work and how they can work than they did years ago. And also because there's just more research um, that shows that when people are in better fit roles, they're happier and more productive and more engaged at work. Hmm. Do, do sites like Glassdoor and Salary.com level the playing field on salaries? Like, do we find, are you finding that, that happiness and employee engagement are, are, is that now the differentiator that maybe a $10,000 bump in salary used to be? Because everybody can you know, like look across it, yeah. and see what they should be paying, being paid. Like has, have, has salary become commoditized and have perks become commoditized to the point where now it's that ineffable 
uh, culture thing that's really driving employment decisions by the candidates? Well, I think yes and no. Um, yes, because we've got exactly a little proprietary list of 34 characteristics that in our research, um, typically in our focus groups, we'll use and we'll ask participants to rank them from what's most important to least important sure. so that we can provide good data to our clients and say, you know, here's why, for example, candidates are not considering you. Um, when we'll do external focus groups with, with candidates who would never work at the, at the you know, particular company or client that we're, um, we're representing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, no matter who it is, for the most part, salary is almost always number one. Um, and it's very much, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Everybody needs money. And it's an easily, very easily quantifiable way to say, hey, I'm worth X. Sure. That said, um, I think the challenge becomes in how you treat it. It's not about the figure itself. And so Glassdoor and Salary.com and other places can say, here's the figure. And there are a lot of large Fortune 500 companies that have MRPs or bands where they can say, here's the the salary range that this role falls in between. And the government is a great example of that. MRP? MRP is a market market reference point, Mm -hmm. um, which basically says, you know, this this particular job, let's say it's a manager, and in this market, the MRP is between, you know, 55 and 72. And so you know going in, your salary is going to fall in that range. Um, and there's almost no negotiation to get out of that range for that level. Um, but I think where the rub is and where the challenge is is what companies do with salary. And where we're hearing mostly, um, what we're hearing mostly in our research right now is where candidates get frustrated or job seekers or employees get frustrated is when salaries don't change. Or when companies sure. say we offer competitive packages or um, there's opportunity for growth, that phrase is on every freaking career site there is. Mm-hmm. But if you don't provide that opportunity for growth, if I don't see my salary going up, then I'm going to call BS on you. Um, and your, you know, your sort of proposed <laughs> well, I think opportunity for growth, right? I think there's probably somewhere in there that lost in translation is the company saying there's opportunity for growth if you actually do a really good job and show some initiative and the other person saying i'm assuming opportunity for growth is code for you're going to hand me continually bigger opportunities and you know bigger money to go along with them and um you know so i'm i I could see where that phrase would become uh uh problematic down the road where one side is like challenging it's totally true, though, Jason, but the challenge, I think, is that companies are not being honest when it comes to their employer brands. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, that is really vague, and people can interpret that, but you, that's why it's so important to be really clear what that means. So how does, that, so, so how does all that come yeah. together? Right? You talk about being honest with the employer brand, and you actually hit on exactly where I wanted to go. Because you, you we're talking about culture, which I, can, I definitely appreciate, and, and just from your conversation about culture... I'm drawing the conclusion that when you talk about consulting on talent, it's kind of the other side of the equation. Who, what kind of person, who should we be bringing into the organization that really fits this? How do we get the people who are already here to adopt or opt out of, of the culture? And if that's the case, sure. I'm, right, I'm wondering, is the employer brand, what's the relationship between the, the employer brand and these different activities, getting your current people on the program, getting leadership to define the program, getting your recruiters to bring people in who are predisposed to the program. Does employer brands sit on top of that? Is it the is it the umbrella? Is it the you know the, the driving force? Like what exactly is the employer brand relative to these different aspects that you're that you're talking about? Sure. So culture is the reality. 
culture is what exists in an organization. It's what you stand for and how you get work done. So on the culture side, for organizations that don't have this or are trying to evolve or change it, usually because they're smaller, they're growing, they're evolving, um, we recommend that they build core values, but they also build something called work rules. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, we have one client, Oros Partners. They're a, a staffing firm, actually, um, outside of Philadelphia. And one of their um, core values is accountability. And they describe it by saying, we are all responsible for the growth of our business. But then they have four work rules that go with that value. One is, we are motivated to find solutions and achieve success for our clients. Two is, we maintain a competitive spirit. And the reason I share that with you is because that's how you can start to be honest. And so in the hiring process, as they're bringing on new consultants, they can say, hey, look, we are really competitive in here. You need to know that if you join us, you're going to be held accountable. And the, one of the ways you're going to be held accountable is you're constantly going to be competing against your colleagues. Mm-hmm. And so they can, they can be honest with people as early as possible in the process. And then you can say, you know what, I'm a great recruiter, but I don't like to staff that way. Um, you know, I don't want to constantly be competing with my colleagues. Mm-hmm. So culture is the reality, and then brand is, we think we forget what, what brand actually is, but brand essentially is the communication of that experience that you can expect. The articulation. So just like a product, right? Sure. Yeah, like a product. Like Pampers is going to tell me that when I buy do- you know, diapers for my daughter, that she's going to stay dry for 12 hours. This is this promise that they're making. And so I expect that, and I expect it to happen every time, right? right. It's that consistency. So that's what the employer brand does. It just takes the culture, it takes the work experience, and it turns it into a codified, articulated way to help people outside the organization before they start understand that. And then it pulls the brand through, right? right? So, so it I, so continues I, well, to sell that promise to current employees. Now I have to now let me ask a scary question. And and um, there's yeah. a bunch of there's, I've got a bunch of questions for you, but here's the yeah. here's what I want to dive into. On the marketing side, right, like Dove soap works for anybody, but from a branding perspective, they chose to focus on women with dry skin. Mm-hmm. Pampers, you know, diapers work for everybody, but Pampers, you look at their commercials, they're focused on first-time parents, right? A lot of their commercials show things like balloons and inanimate objects soaking up water as opposed to Huggies, which shows actual kids in them, right? So Huggies is going after parents who have kids and Pampers is going after the first-time parents. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Mac, for a long time, went after designers and education. So with all of these brands, with, with this process you're describing, there's, yeah. a, there's a purposeful exclusion to everybody who does not fit our model and, you know, and our desired demographic. You started off by saying there's a, there's a war for talent. So uh-huh. I, would, I would think... That in a war for talent, you want to cast as wide a net as possible. So how does getting surgical and focused and exclusionary help people win a war for talent? It sounds so counterintuitive. The, yeah. Yeah. No, it makes, it's a great question. Here's the metaphor I would use. You can sell, if you find a good salesperson, right? You always hear the phrase, this person could sell ice to an Eskimo, right? So you could find someone, if they're really good at sales, to sell diapers to parents with no, uh, sorry, to adults with no kids, okay? You could you know, make a reason, what else could you use diapers for? But they're probably not going to buy them again. Mm-hmm. So when you try to sell to everybody, whether you're selling a product or you're selling an employment experience, 
you might see short-term uptick, but you're not going to see long-term value or a relationship. And that's what brand is, resonance. It's all about building a relationship. And so you want to, on the product side, build a relationship with the right customer because based on your research, you know where you need to grow customers. So Huggies, because in the diaper market, Huggies is, I think, number three right now in terms of market share. They're going after people who have relationships with other diaper brands to try to steal them. Mm-hmm. Campers, because they're number one in the market. In fact, it's also the largest uh, market share for any product that Procter & Gamble sells. They're going to go after new parents because they want to build the brand resonance, the relationship from the beginning. So they've used their research to make a really specific target. On the employer brand side, we advocate exactly that you should do the exact same thing. And well, here's so, why. Well, and, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an important thing that you just said, which is if you're the leader of the market, you grow the market. If you're not the leader, you stale share. So I want to come back to that. I want to hear why, yep. and then I want to come back to that and yeah. its implications on the recruiting side of things. Well, I was just going to say on the, you know, on the why side, at the end of the day, you don't want everyone to work for your company. What? Not everybody fits, fits what? There. I know, right? Shocking. <laughs> um, but I think people are starting to realize that. They're starting to realize no matter what the brand is, that there's a certain kind of person that is successful in a job and with a company in a culture. And, you know, not to, I, I hate to always use the Zappos example, but I use it because it's personal to me. I would hate working at Zappos. Some of the things they do are totally hokey. It's just not my personality. Could I do a good job there and do I have the skills sure. to do some of the jobs there? Yeah. Well, but I wouldn't like it and I wouldn't be happy. But, you know, but there's, there's another part of that, which is everything you're saying makes sense. But it would seem to me that it also requires a change at the clients you know, and in terms of their processes. I mean, you use the magic word. You, to me, you said resonance. And, and to me, that's... that's that encapsulates the change that we're seeing today. It's, it's not about reach. It's about resonating with the people you connect with because if you just go broad and you reach a bunch of people but there's no resonance, that's called spam. And so like, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, but I'm wondering you know, with your clients, what that means is they're used to seeing these really, really broad and shallow recruiting funnels where a whole bunch of resumes come in. The majority of them are unqualified for the job. And then there's this like mm-hmm. really small group that they get to really quickly, and they you know they sift through those, and they get to just a couple of of, um, of of candidates to interview. But when you talk about putting a brand together and and getting somebody like yourself, if I'm if I have a Zappos like culture of, of kind of a free for all culture, anything goes, kind of crazy, and, and you're a little bit more buttoned up, and you know you want to know kind of what the routine for the week is going to be. Um, you're going to opt out before you ever get to my funnel. My funnel is going to look different. The metrics I have are going to look different. My reports to the, to the head of HR are going to be different. Uh, my, what I'm giving to hiring managers is going to be different. Do you find that culturally just even getting this far drives, uh, drives change or drives problems in companies where they struggle to adapt to what it means to live by their brand because of the implications to things like what they're measuring and how they, how they define success. Yeah. And I, I think part of the challenge is, you know, change is hard and what's happened is our traditional recruiting strategies have all been about using channels that drive volume. And so if you've gotten any sort of success, you know, you've gotten hires or you've dropped time to fill or whatever it is, um, through those channels, it seems counterintuitive or strange to move away from those channels. 
but all of our traditional job-seeking channels, whether it was, you know, the 80s and you were sending out resumes um, in response to a newspaper ad um, through the mail, God forbid, or, you know, you started using job boards in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, Those job boards can cast a wide net and they continue to cast a wide net. And so to me, it's really um, about helping our clients understand that employer brand is just like consumer brand and going through the exercise of thinking about who your target customer is, what is that brand persona that you're trying to reach, that high potential that you want to hire again and again and that you know will be successful in your culture, but also can do the job. Mm-hmm. And how do you find the channels and the strategies to best attract those individuals? And that's part of the problem is we're still using in recruiting so many traditional channels that cast these broad nets. That's why, in our opinion, it's so hard to move away from them. Um, But when companies do, and we always say start with a pilot, start something small. Then they see the success and they see that the hiring process, they're getting so many more qualified candidates early on. So rather than, you know, have a, a recruiter sort through 40 terrible resumes to find two great candidates, they've got 10 resumes, eight of which are a great fit. Well, and you, so, there's a, so there's a path to changing the process, but you also identified another challenge too. I mean, that's, that's awesome. And you just had an article in HBR about how the very things that really drive engagement and can help boost a, an employer brand are the things that most companies don't even generally think about. They're all the stuff that happens after hours, the, the personal side of the equation as opposed to the professional side of the equation. Yeah, we call it the whole self model. Um, and what it does is it encompasses, and um, it's got four quadrants, and it encompasses the entire individual. And, you know, it's funny. A couple people have said to me, um, oh, that looks like you're talking about somebody outside of work and what people do outside of work. That's part of it, but really it's called the whole self model because it's not about what you do at work or outside of work. It's not an either or. You bring your whole self to work. We are who we are. We don't shed anything at the door. Um, if we've had a bad day at work, it's really hard to shed it when we come home. It's going to affect how we interact with our families, our spouses, or our partners. Um, same thing at work. If you're having challenges at home, you're not going to shed that at the door um, when you get to work. Um, my daughter was sick on Friday. I had to cancel a number of appointments and meetings, um, and there was you know, nothing I could do about that. So the whole self model is designed to make sure when you're thinking through your value proposition of what you have to offer, that you're looking at your high potentials, those individuals who are most successful in your organization, and you're looking at what are the patterns that are common amongst those individuals as individuals. So to find those patterns, certainly we look at work data, right? We want to know patterns of engagement, patterns of satisfaction, but we also look at internal self, um, what people value personally. We look at external self, where their energy is spent outside of work hours, and we look at relationships what kind of people um, influence the decisions and the actions they take in their life, in their lives, and who are these people and, and what kind of influence do they have? Yeah. Well, look, I call it the professional workplace. Uh, exactly. I love that term. So it's, it, it, but it's, it's the same concept. And it, it always struck me, it always struck me as funny that people would think that, that you have this work life and this personal life and that there is some bright red line between them, right? Because it, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you, I always thought, put it in the terms of like education. Like, if you learn something on the job, do you forget it when you get out of mm-hmm. your car at six o'clock? And then do you remember it again? And, you know, eight thirty when you show up at work the next day. Like, how how do you think that works? Or if you go through a development program, 
what does your development stop when you leave work? And then what happens like a year on when, when you've been, you know, iteratively developing at work and then going home and playing video games? Like, do you, do you reach a point where you, you have, you know, the dichotomy between your two selves is so great that you just have a breakdown? Like it, it just, it, obviously that doesn't make any sense. And, and one of the things that I loved about social media is it, it brought that ridiculousness into pretty clear uh, relief. You know, it, like it just it made the contrast so stark for, for so many people that it, it really, I think, has um, catalyzed this whole shift to a more integrated yeah. approach to work, which, you know, if that's all we get from social, I think that'll be a, a pretty good benefit. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with the word integrated. Um, you know, part of our challenge is we don't think about integrated and strategic plans when we think about our brands and we think about recruiting. We mm-hmm. just do stuff, right? The latest vendor comes to our door, job board says, I can guarantee you these results. So we say, okay. Same thing happened with social. It was, I need a Facebook careers page. I need to be on Twitter. I need to be on Instagram. And I think integrated is a really good word to think through how do we integrate all of the things that we're talking about when we talk about our candidates and our employees. And then how do we find the integrated strategies that addresses who they are as people, both in and outside of work? So, so this is a pretty unique niche in terms of workforce research. I mean, you're, you're really, you know, to apply branding concepts to the workforce. Uh, we've, been, we've been saying here for, for a while that we see this trend coming where companies need to start marketing to their employees. And... And that's what you're doing. You're, and not just their employees, but their future employees as well. Um, how did you get here? What, what work were you doing that let you see this opportunity and gave you the, the you know, kind of the push to start Exacrio? So I was, um, I've been in HR for about 20 years. Um, and I spent, um, before I started Exacrio, I spent the previous five years um, with Marriott International and Rich Carlton. And those wonderful experiences, um, opportunities to work with evolving and changing brands. Um, Marriott purchased uh, 49% of Ritz-Carlton in 95 and the remaining 51% in 99. And so when I joined um, in the 2000s, it was really about integrating the brands, growing the brands. Um, and they didn't have any employer brand um, expertise. Um, the only employer brand work they were doing was really sort of the reactive collateral for a job fair, for example. Mm-hmm. And so when I went in, when I, when I shifted from Ritz-Carlton to Marriott, um, as the organization was changing, I, they said to me, we want you to grow an employer brand strategy for this portfolio of 18 brands. And, you know, our culture is we're very much a, a family here. And so we want to build an employer brand around that. And so I thought about that, and I had, um, you know, during my, my MBA, had spent a lot of time studying consumer marketing techniques and thought to myself, you know, if you don't build a brand strategy, you don't make base assumptions like that. So I started looking at the existing research, and there really wasn't too much. There was, you know, status, employee engagement survey research, et cetera. And I realized that the only data that I had to build the brand was assumptive data. But I also couldn't go into the office of Mr. Marriott and say, hey, I know your name's on the door, um, but I don't think that this company is, is um, really, uh, truly about just family anymore. They're, they're not coming um, over for Thanksgiving, buddy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, now, all of that said, you know, Mr. Marriott, was an, I, he was still CEO at the time. He is iconic. He's built this amazing company and this amazing brand. But my assumption, my personal assumption was that people were making, especially globally outside the U.S., 
we're making employment choices for reasons um, different from that. And so the only way to verify my assumptions is to do research. So I made a convincing argument um, to get budget to do a global research study. And we went all over the world. We went to India. We went to Egypt. We went to China. And I had some really personal experiences. Um, you know, in Egypt, for example, um, there are sort of there's staff housing um, because you have a lot of expats that mm-hmm. come from other places sure. or also come from other parts of Egypt. They work for a while and they go home. And, you know, it was just eye-opening for me to understand that their reality is different from mine. So long story short, um, all of this research we gathered from all over the world validated my assumption that it wasn't about family. It was about the the globality of the company. It was about um, how the company was, um, had provided all of these opportunities for employees to go all over the world or if they only ever worked in one hotel to still be connected globally. Mm-hmm. And that's where the employer brand line Find Your World is still in use today at Marriott. Um, that's where that came from. And that's where what really kick-started um, my desire and my passion around the research part of things. Mm-hmm. Because at the same time, I was also getting pitched by all these agencies who just wanted to come in and do really cool creative, which is helpful and important. But I didn't know what they were basing that creative on. So that's where um, my passion for research um, began. And then once I was able to build the employer brand at Marriott and get it to a really stable place, um, I knew it was time for me to move on and for them to find the next um, team. And the gentleman who actually runs the employer brand function now at Marriott has a consumer brand background. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that I pushed for. I said, let's look for somebody who um, comes from the consumer side of things. And it's one of the reasons I think now um, the team over there has been so successful is because they're adopting those consumer techniques. And so then you left Marriott and then had a conversation at a coffee shop with a friend in Latin? (laughs) There was no, my my knowledge of Latin is is pretty poor. Um, (laughs) Basically, you know, it was one of the, one of the things when I left Marriott, all the conversations I was having with people, um, because, you know, I got really lucky. People were excited about, um, the success that Marriott had an employer brand. So I had an opportunity to share that with, you know, a number of people at different well, conferences and, and webinars. And, and now you're actually having your own conference. You actually have uh, something that you're doing this June, Brand Like a CMO, where you are bringing together HR leaders and sharing some of those, uh, some of those marketing insights that you instituted in the hospitality. Yeah, yeah, because I... I myself um, wished I had had something like that um, when I was at Marriott. So the, the goal of Brand Like a CMO is to teach employer brand and talent acquisition leaders to think like marketers. You know, as Jason, at the end of the day, I think everybody wants to go back to work and make an impact, right? Yes. Nobody's going to hang their hat on a Taleo implementation um, or get really excited about, um, you know, changing their cost per hire. But if you can make a big brand impact, if you can really shift the way people look at employment opportunities at your company, that can be really powerful. And the way to make a big big impact is to think about things differently and take some risks. And that's where I think looking at employer brands a completely different lens um, as strategic, just like consumer marketers do, um, can do that for a lot of folks. So we're excited about the, the group of people that we have there. Um, and um, we're excited to have a uh, brand paper sponsor our, our dinner as well um, during the class. Yes, full disclosure, Brand Amper will be sponsoring a dinner because I think what you're doing is fantastic. My co-founder and I could not be more happy to support this kind of thinking in the field. We think it's uh, important. More people need to uh, subscribe to it. And brings me to a great closing question, Susan, which is 
if people want your help elevating their thinking, making a difference, where can they find you? So you can find us in a couple places. Um, you can always find us at exactlyo.com. Um, yes, it's hard to pronounce and hard to say, um, but it's E-X-A-Q-U-E-O.com. You can also email me directly. I'm more than happy to chat with anybody offline. I'm just Susan at exactlyo.com. Um, more than happy to just, you know, sort of kick ideas around on the phone um, or on Skype, whatever is easiest. And I think that's part of how we all get better. Um, I learn every day. My team does. Um, and the only way to do that is to have conversations, to hear people's challenges and problems and talk things through. Um, and, and it's one of the most exciting things I think about employer brand in general is that the field continues to evolve and grow and there's lots for all of us to learn. Definitely. And one of my favorite things is, is truly what you just said, how accessible everybody is. And I truly appreciate you uh, giving some of your time to us this morning, today, to share some of your thoughts because it's conversations like this that I think make us all better. So thank you so much for joining uh, the Resonate podcast today. Thanks for having me and for inviting me to join. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this Recruiting Daily podcast. 